You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening, everyone. Uh, we are beginning our series, new series on Extraordinary Jewish Personalities, which is part of our Jewish Matters podcast. So welcome. Our first personality is Menachem Begin. And I have to start by saying that uh, I am prejudiced. I have a bias because Menachem Begin is one of my heroes and I think he's one of the greatest leaders of modern Jewish history. Uh, to be fair, I would not only read his book, of course, The Revolt, uh, Daniel Gordis's biography of him, which is very positive, but I also read Avi Shilon's, which is uh, somewhat critical. So I did try to get a balance. Menachem Begin had amazing accomplishments. He was a hawk who refused to give up land, yet he was the first Israeli prime minister to make peace with an Arab country. He led a revolt against the British, which was one of the strong factors that caused them to pull out of Palestine, and he was hidden for two years with a manhunt and a bounty on his head. Third of all, he was the person who I believe is, mo and you'll see why, is, was most responsible for the reuniting of Jerusalem, the liberation of the Western Wall, and of the Temple Mount. Fourth of all, he destroyed the nuclear reactor in Osrik when Saddam Hussein was threatening to destroy the Jewish state. And despite these four amazing accomplishments, making peace with the Arabs, pushing out the British, reuniting Jerusalem in 67, destroying the nuclear reactor, he himself said that his greatest accomplishment was preventing civil war. And we'll see when that came up. So in order to understand Menachem Begin, you, there are two fundamental things we have to understand. First of all, that he grew up in a traditional religious Jewish family in Brisk in Poland, and that will uh, strongly influence his outlook for the rest of his life. And the other seminal event was the uh, killing of his family during the Holocaust. And we'll see how those two parts of his life really marked him throughout his career and throughout his leadership. Uh, when he was in Brisk uh, as a young man, he studied law but never really practiced because he was an activist. The activism he did was as part of Beitar, which was the youth group of revisionist Zionism, and we'll talk about what that is, under the leadership of Zev Jabotinsky. He helped uh, Jews, ref Jewish refugees, cross Europe and helped try to smuggle them into Palestine. Uh, but the war broke out. He fled from Poland to Vilna, to Lithuania. His family remained behind, and his father, mother, brother, and two four- and five-year-old cousins were murdered by the Nazis in Brisk. They were marched down to the river, shot, and their bodies fell into the river. And this will haunt him and constantly be with him for the rest of his life. He was rounded up by the Russians, accused of being a 
British conspirator, which is quite ironic since later he will take on the British Empire, uh, and sent to the Gulag, to labor camps. He didn't spend that long in the labor camps, but he was tortured by the Russians before being sent there. After about six months, Germany turned on Russia in 1942, and so the Russians liberated, with an agreement with the Free Polish Government in Exile, liberated the Polish prisoners. He joined the Free Polish Army and managed to be sent to Palestine as part of the Polish Free Army. When he was in Palestine, he had an interesting dilemma presented to him. And this dilemma was, does he go back to Europe and fight with the Polish army against the Nazis, which is what he wanted to do? Or does he remain in Palestine and help the Irgun effort to bring Jews clandestinely to Palestine to try and circumvent the British blockade and to try to help save Jews in that way and to fight generally for the Jewish community uh, in Palestine. And even though he wanted to do the former, his friends convinced him to do the latter. The Polish army gave him a leave of absence and he joined the Irgun. And it was two short years later, uh, by that time he was the head of the Irgun. Now to understand who the Irgun was and what was going on then, we have to turn back a little and just look back at revisionist Zionism. Zev Jabotinsky viewed the mainstream Jewish uh, establishment in Palestine, particularly in the already in the 1920s, as being much too accommodating with the British. He understood that the British were becoming less and less inclined towards a Jewish homeland. In fact, four-fifths of Transjordan, which was promised to the Jews as part of the Balfour Declaration and the San Remo Conference, four-fifths of it was broken off and formed into the Kingdom of Jordan. One-fifth was less. And he knew that the influence of Arab oil was already starting. And so he advocated pushing for Jewish independence, even against British policy. And he pushed for Jewish self-defense, even though the British were, did not want the populations defending themselves. They were supposed to keep the order, which they often didn't do and were biased towards the Arabs. They would ignore the Arabs carrying arms, arrest Jews who did. And Jabotinsky, another part of his outlook was that in the 1930s, somehow he understood what was coming, what was brewing. And he traveled around Europe, warning the people, a cloud is over Europe, a, a, a holocaust is coming, a terrible decimation of the Jewish community is coming. He didn't call it a holocaust. But he understood that great destruction was going to come, and he pleaded with Jews to leave Europe and to go to Palestine. Of course, most did not listen to him. And, but when uh, Germany, in, by the late 30s, started their policy of Judenrein, he and the Irgun clandestinely brought Jews on barges down the Danube River to boats in Italy and to Palestine. The Jewish establishment were much less inclined to do so. They felt Jews had to be prepared, had to know how to 
farm, had to be uh, of working age, and they really viewed immigration as building the country. Whereas for Jabotinsky, by that time, it was simply Hatzalah, saving Jewish lives. And so uh, their policies diverged. Begin in 1944, as the crematoria are spewing out millions of Jews and destroying and killing millions of Jews, he understood that it was a question of life and death. And so when the British turned away boats, refused to change their policy, limited the number of immigrants, and they issued a white paper at the beginning of World War II saying they were closing the borders of Palestine. I think they allowed 10,000 a year Jews in. So by 1944, they formally declared war against the British Empire. The Irgun, there were three groups. The Irgun, which Begin led, the Haganah, to the left, and the Lehi to the right. The Haganah's policy, once again, was not to ruffle the British feathers, uh, to accept their policies, to try to negotiate with them, try to get more visas. And the Lehi, their policy was like the Irgun, that this was a war of liberation. And it was so imperative because Jewish lives were being lost. Jews had nowhere to flee from Europe, and the British closing the gates was, the, was allowing for the death of hundreds of thousands of Jews. So they started an armed struggle. They would attack British military emplacements to harass them and to, uh, and to, uh, to show them that there was a war going on. They would steal arms from the British, and some of them who had been in the British Army, uh, dressed up in their uniforms, knew the British accents, stole a truck, drove into the British uh, Army camps, and simply drove away with arms which they were then used against the British. They blew up bridges, disrupted infrastructure. Uh, they would call up the post office and British bureaucratic offices, warn them to tell everyone to go out or at night, and they would bomb those emplacements. They were not looking to kill civilians, although they would shoot at soldiers if need be, because it was a war. And, here's a, and so in 1941, Begin declares war. And the British, of course, do not take it sitting down. They declare it illegal for Jews to carry arms. And if Jews were caught carrying arms, they would be at first flogged. When the British flogged the Jewish soldiers, the Jews would kidnap British soldiers and flog them. Of course, the British were incensed, and then they made it death penalty to care for Jews to carry arms. Uh, Jews were caught, and there was much international pressure put against the British, but Sometimes in secret trials, they would try the Jewish young boys, who sometimes were no older than 19, 20, 21 years old, and hang them. And when this happened, Begin ordered the Irgun to kidnap British soldiers and said, you hang our boys, we're hanging your soldiers. The British did not think they'd do it, and he did it. And 
in, interestingly enough, the British backed off and there was kind of a, uh, a mini ceasefire over these issues. And this was part of Begin's outlook on life, which was that Jews had been persecuted, his family had died in the Holocaust, and we now needed to defend ourselves like anyone else would. In his book, The Revolt, he does say that he drew a line. What is the definition of terrorism? And this is a much debated issue in the scholarly world and the political world. But one of the parameters that is often used is that uh, a war is fighting against the military and the government. Terrorism is when you attack civilians. And Begin said his policy was not to attack civilians. And by the way, the Lechi, who were more right-wing, um, formed by Avraham Stern, uh, also known as the Stern Gang, they, uh, they would kill civilians. And the most dramatic example of that was in 1947 when the UN High Commissioner's envoy had proposed a partition plan uh, the Lechi went and assassinated him. And, uh, of course, it was very controversial. Um, but back to Menachem Begin. So 1940s, the Second World War is going on, leading a campaign against the British. And the policy, which was voiced by David Ben-Gurion, the leader of the Haganah, later become the first Prime Minister of Israel, uh, was, now they had a dilemma because they, had, they were opposing British policy, yet the British were the ones fighting the Nazis. So they said this, we will fight the white paper, which was the British policy of closing off the borders to Jewish, Jewish refugees. We will fight the light, white paper like there's no war, like there's no World War II. In other words, we'll take on the British in that area, but we'll fight World War II, we'll help the British fight against the Nazis like there's no white paper, even though the British are holding us back. And Jews fought in World War I and were loyal to the British and the Allies, unlike uh, the Arabs. In World War II, as we know, the Arabs sided with the Nazis, the Mufti of Jerusalem going to Berlin. Jews and the Irgun sent their boys to Iraq on request of the British to try and help their war efforts there and many other areas and died for the allied British cause. But at the same time, Begin was fighting the white paper. They were trying to bring boats, smuggle refugees across the border. World War II is over. And now there are 300,000 displaced persons in Europe. And these are people who had suffered the Holocaust and were still in camps in Europe, in the blood fields. And Begin, the Irgun, felt that it was all the more imperative now. Before it was saving lives who were going to die, now it was saving souls who had gone through hell. And so they upped their game in the war against the British. And a, as I mentioned, a bounty was put on Begin's head. One of the biggest manhunts was mounted to find Menachem Begin, who they knew was leading this effort. And where was he? He was hiding in the middle of Tel Aviv, 
not in some cave hidden away somewhere. Once again, part of his view of Hadar, of Jewish bravery, Jewish dignity, and Jewish destiny. He disguised himself, interestingly enough, as a uh, rabbi, uh, not quite a rabbi, a shamus, the person who cleans up the synagogue. He lived right next to the synagogue, grew a beard, was there with his wife and child, and had a very small circle of, of his direct uh, operatives who knew where he was and had contact with him, and then they would send out uh, his marching orders. Um, so, uh, and as I mentioned, they upped their game. And so, at one point, uh, at, by this point, the Haganah had soured on the British a little, and they were helping the Irgun, but we'll see it was very short-lived. The Irgun decided to mount the most chutzpahdik, uh mission so far, which was to attack the center of the British military command in Jerusalem in the, da- in the King David Hotel. But as was their policy, they were not looking to kill the British. And so they called up. They said, clear out your headquarters. We are going to destroy it. And the British officer in command, of course, stiff upper lip, said, we don't take orders from Jews. Jews take orders from us. He ignored the warning. They called back again, but the mission had been put in motion. Uh, Irgun operatives dressed as milkmen, went, uh, sorry, as laundrymen, I think it was laundrymen or milkmen, went in with a truck into the basement of the King David Hotel, and the bomb was set. It exploded. Dozens of people were killed, including a few Jewish people, many injured, and the world was even more incensed. At this point, David Ben-Gurion denied having been involved, even though they gave the green light. At this point, they were all together, and flipped back to the British and declared the hunting season, where the Haganah helped the British to root out the Irgun fighters denounced them, uh, gave information where they were, helped remove their arms. Many of hundreds and hundreds were arrested, sent to camps, sent to Africa. Um, Some of them were tortured to get more information. And this is the first instance when I mentioned. Begin said that he felt his greatest accomplishment in life was preventing civil war. And he told the Jewish soldiers, he said to them, do not fight back. And they didn't. And they allowed themselves to be arrested and for their efforts that they built up for so many years to be severely set back. But the fight continued. And uh, eventually, the British got to the point where they realized that the amount of energy and of resources, they had to have 100,000 troops guarding the some million population, around 300,000 Jews. And by the way, the Arabs were also rebelling against them. Uh, So the Jews weren't their only headache. But several authorities, including Rabbi Abihil El-Silver, the American Reform rabbi and Zionist leader said, 
after independence, the Irgun will go down in history as the factor without which the state of Israel would not have come into being. And I don't have the exact citation for you, but the British governor of Palestine afterwards said that the Irgun operatives were one of the main reasons the British had to pull out of Palestine. And finally, in the fall of 1947, the British throw up their arms. They say, we are giving over this whole headache to the UN and let them deal with it. The UN came up with the proposal for the partition plan. It was voted on in the United Nations. Of course, the famous vote of Harry Truman and of Stalin in favor. And now uh, it would be six months till the British would withdraw. And it wasn't known yet whether the Jews would declare a state. But the, the Arabs started attacking more. And each of the groups, the Haganah, the uh, Lehi, and uh, the uh, sorry, the, the Haganah, the Irgun, and the Lehi, the Stern Gang, each of these three groups fought against the Arabs who were starting to attack them. May 1948, Israel declares statehood. And the British had been preventing the Jews from arming themselves, knowing full well that once they declared independence, the Arabs would attack. Uh, and by the way, they did not confiscate Arab arms. When they pulled out, they gave the Arabs over many of the fortresses. And so the Jewish, uh, the Jewish establishment had bought arms already. The second statehood was declared, the arms started pouring in. And the Urgun made their own efforts in this area. And they accumulated uh, significant funds to buy an enormous shipment of weapons and it was put on a bolt called the Altalena. And Begun would be arriving with the Altalena uh, in Israel. He had been in Europe procuring arms. And there were big debates here between Ben-Gurion and Begin of what would be done with these weapons. So Begin, of course, felt like the Irgun had raised the money and that it should go towards his fighters. 20%, he said, should go towards his fighters who were fighting on the Jerusalem front. front. Uh, the Irgun was largely responsible for, uh, now known as the Etzel, the, uh, their fighting division. They, were, they had retaken Jaffa and other areas. And the three militias were working as part of the Israel Defense Forces, but had not been totally integrated yet. And David Ben-Gurion was afraid and felt that Menachem Begin would develop his own state within a state, his own army within a nation, and didn't trust Begin. Part of the reason was, and we have to understand, that the two were so diametrically different. Begin was traditional and came from the Jabotinsky revisionist and was, was, took on the British. Ben-Gurion was a socialist, non-religious, uh, left-leaning Labernik. Begin used rhetoric and emotions to stir up the populace and to get them to follow in the tradition of Jabotinsky. And many saw this as 
in the tradition of, of the totalitarian, totalitarian leaders like a Mussolini, uh, and that it was demagoguery. See it as you will. Begin gave assurances that he only wanted some of it for his men, the rest could go to the other fighters, but he also didn't, on his side, didn't trust Ben-Gurion. And so the two negotiated, they were at an impasse, the arms were on the way, negotiations were ongoing as the boat came into Tel Aviv Harbor. And here, terrible tragedy struck because they did not, Ben-Gurion did not have firm assurances he gave the order to attack the Altalena. Artillery was fired, uh, shots were taken, and 14 Irgun fighters were killed, many more injured. Had the artillery actually ca caused an explosion on the boat, it could have taken out the whole Tel Aviv waterfront. There were so many explosives on the boat. But it didn't. And this point, once again, Begin, who was last said he, he was the last one to leave the ship. He wouldn't leave the ship until he knew his men were safe. He got into a boat and um, he was giving the orders as they went along that no one should fire back. One can imagine you're being shot at by your own people who you're coming to try and help. And he gives the order no one is to shoot back or to fight back. And you had the crazy situation where you had two brothers, one in Irgun, one in in, the, in Haganah, and facing off on the streets of Tel Aviv, and uh, I believe the stories are that they both put down their weapons and would not shoot at each other. But there are Haganah that did shoot at the Irgun, and uh, this is probably the prime situation where Begin said his greatest accomplishment in his career and in his life, and as a Jewish leader, was to prevent civil war. Eventually, the Irgun is uh, integrated into the rest of the Israel Defense Forces. The government is formed, and Begin goes into politics. And his party, the Herut Party, remained in the opposition for 30 years. There was much bad blood between he and Ben-Gurion, obviously. Uh, Ben-Gurion would not even mention Begin by name. Once again, he viewed him as a demagogue, as a, uh, as a fanatic, um, and uh, the Herod party gained somewhere around 15% of the vote, sometimes more, sometimes less, allied with other parties, but did not play a major role in the unfolding in the 50s and 60s, until 1967. But there's one incident before that that we have to talk about. In 1952, the German government proposed to give reparations to Israel. And this was a very debated, very controversial issue. And Menachem Begin was absolutely against it. He felt that this was blood money, that the Germans were buying off the Jews and refused to take it and had an absolute policy that Israel should refuse to take it. The other side of the argument was that the Germans had been contrite. They were trying to make amends and show that they were contrite and whatever they could do to help, they wanted to. And remember, this was an Israel that was not a first world country, maybe not even a second world. There were rations, there was uh, hunger, 
there were hundreds of thousands of Sephardic immigrants who had come without any belongings because the Arabs wouldn't let them take their property, were living in tent cities. Um, the country was in dire straits. Begin mounted a demonstration in front of the Knesset. 15,000 people showed up. And when they started making a run on the Knesset, whereas before he said, do not turn Jew, turn on Jew, here he said, go, stop this, what, whatever you have to do to stop it. And there were riots, there were broken windows, there were Knesset members injured. Eventually the police got it under control. And as we know, the reparations were passed. So he lost that battle, but we will see it wasn't the end. 1967, the clouds of war are hanging over Israel. The Arab neighbors are threatening to attack. And Israel decides to convene an emergency unity government, bringing Menachem Begin into the cabinet as minister without portfolio. Levi Eshkol was the prime minister at that time. And he, uh, Begin, went with a delegation. Levi Eshkol was viewed as not such a strong leader, sometimes indecisive, uh, not much military history and experience. And they decided they were going to call on David Ben-Gurion to come out of retirement and back into the government and back as prime minister. They go in a delegation, including Begin. Now, uh, Paula Ben-Gurion, uh, David's wife, had always had a soft spot for Menachem Begin, unlike her husband. And the husband did receive him courteously. He declined the prime ministership, said, I am in retirement, although his view was not to attack. They saw him as being kind of out of the loop, but the two men left on good terms and made amends. Perhaps it was with the specter of war looming, they felt even more how vital it was to make amends. The Arabs attack, as we know, and uh, the Egyptians, uh, the Jews run a preemptive strike. The state of Israel wipes out the Egyptian air force. Uh, the attack is on, and they tell the Jordanians, don't attack us, we've nothing against you. You don't attack us, we won't attack you. King Hussein ignores the request. He attacks, and Begin's first thought is, this is our opportunity to liberate and unite Jerusalem and liberate the Western Wall. And at just the first day of war, he brings it up in the cabinet meeting. He tries to start to bring it up. The bombs are falling near the Knesset. They're called to go into a bomb shelter. And uh, the other book I have to recommend is The Prime Ministers by Yehuda Avineri, I believe it is who was the speech writer, Yehuda Avner, who was the speech writer for five of the prime ministers from both sides of the political spectrum. And an amazing book, first-hand report, uh, accounts of these incredible personalities, highly recommended. And he describes how they were sitting in a broom closet, which was the bomb shelter, and Menachem Begin says, gentlemen and lady, I guess... Uh, Goldemeyer was part of the cabinet as well. We have to look at this opportunity to take the Western Wall. There were those who were against. The fighting went on. At three in the morning, he calls Levi Eshkol. He said, if we don't do it now, it's not going to happen. Levi Eshkol calls a 7 a.m. meeting. 
he says, I've decided against the advice of Moshe Dayan, the defense minister, we are attacking. The attack is launched. Jerusalem is reunited. The Western Wall is taken. The Jewish people are exuberant. And one can't but wonder, had Menachem Begin not been brought in as part of the cabinet, would this have ever have happened? Would the Jewish people ever have reclaimed the Temple Mount after 2,000 years and reunited our capital, Jerusalem? So, once again, one of the great accomplishments of Begin. 1977, Begin's political career takes an unexpected turn. And in an uh, underdog la- uh, o- uh, overturning election, he defeats Yitzhak Rabin, who had been prime minister. Now, people don't realize this, but Rabin had been prime minister first time in the 1970s. And Begin had a very loyal following. Many of them were the Svardim, who had been felt dispossessed and marginalized in the country. And there are many reasons for the Svardim being aligned with Menachem Begin. First of all, there was his traditionalism, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, him being a traditional Jew as opposed to the secular socialist Zionists. Second of all, his style, his emotional speaking got them all excited. Third of all, his outlook of Jewish strength and Jewish pride and to stand up to the Arabs, which the Sephardim had many, much experience with. So in an overturned victory, he defeats Yitzhak Rabin, and here is where we see the traditional side of Menachem Begin come out and his strong faith, which led him, gave him the strength throughout his years. The first thing he did with his followers when he heard the news that he was ahead in the polls and was going to win is he said the Shechianu blessing, thanking the Almighty for bringing him to this victory. The second thing he did, he turned to his wife Paula and told his love for her and his thanks for her for following him into the Midbar, into the desert. Uh, Of course, he meant the fight against the British, um, the manhunt, the hiding, and 30 years in the opposition government. And this was very in contrast to Yitzhak Rabin, who was very unemotional and introvert. So these were his first two acts. Very quickly, he was brought into uh, negotiations with the United States about moving a peace process ahead with the Palestinians. And here, once again, Begin's traditionalism, he informed Carter that his view was that Judah and Shomron, what was known as the West Bank, was the Jewish heartland and a Jew will never leave their homeland. He said to Carter, and uh, he was, nevertheless, he said that I put no preconditions for negotiations, which Rabin had actually done, and so they'd, they'd stopped. He said, I will come to Washington and we can negotiate. I have my views, but I'm willing to talk. And so he was invited to Washington and with a few caveats. One was that the banquet, the food, had to be kosher. 
And so at the first meeting banquet but with all of the staff and dignitaries, Menachem Begin sat down, put on his kippah, and said, Mehamotzi lechem min ha'aretz, in front of the President of the United States, the first time you had a kosher meal in the White House. And this was part of his expression of Jewish pride, of being proud of who we were, and of our history, and of our heritage. And he also said in negotiations to Carter, he'd asked his staff to draw up a list of all the places in America that are named Shiloh, Beit El, and Bethlehem. And he presented it with the states to Carter. And he said to Mr. Carter, President Carter, if you would say a Jew is not allowed to go to these cities, you, the answer, the reaction would be bigotry, anti-Semitism, unacceptable. Yet you're asking me to give the Jewish heartland with Shiloh, Bethel, and Bethlehem to the Arabs? And a Jew would not be allowed to go there? And Hebron, the birthplace of our patriarchs and matriarchs? He said, never will I do such a thing. But in the process of these negotiations, which then moved on to the Arab states, because Begin refused to negotiate with Yasser Arafat, who had Jewish hands on, blood on his hands, he said, I'll negotiate with the Palestinians, but not with that terrorist. Let them find another leader, someone else to represent them, not him. But in the process of talking with Sadat, he showed that he was more amenable to negotiations. And so Sadat, in a speech in Cairo, let it be known that he said, I will come to Jerusalem and speak in the Knesset and present my plan. Begin heard it in the news, immediately called Cairo and extended the invitation. Sadat wanted to come in a few months later on a Saturday and Begin said, I will let you come, I would love to have you, but the flight will arrive 8 p.m. on Saturday night. And after the Shabbat, once again, part of his strong traditional uh, anchor. Negotiations moved on, and it became clear that Begin, even though everyone thought his position was no land for peace because he felt there would be no peace with terrorists, and he wouldn't give up the land of Israel or Jerusalem, but the Sinai was not part of Israel. And so, in an historic uh, event, the F Begin was the first prime minister to make peace with an Arab state. And they flew to Washington on the White House lawn, uh, the treaty was signed, the Sinai was given back, and Carter, Begin, and Anwar Sadat received the Nobel Peace Prize. Unbelievable turn of events. So, that was the height of his prime ministership. Another high moment and noteworthy moment was the attack on the Iraqi nuclear reactor in Osirak. Saddam Hussein had been threatening to destroy and wipe out the Jewish state. He was a dictator who was ruthless. And the French and the Italians had, were helping him develop a nuclear reactor, supposedly for peaceful purposes. 
Menachem Begin knew this was an existential danger to the state of Israel, and after unsuccessful diplomatic channels to the French, the Italians, the Iraqis, called for the strike. The strike was carried out, and he was condemned by the United States, by the UN, throughout the world. And ironically, 10 years later, George W. Bush, when he went in to take out Saddam Hussein and when they invaded Iraq, thanked Begin for having destroyed the nuclear reactor. From there, uh, his prime ministership went through challenges, most notably the Second Lebanon War. The PLO were attacking with incursions across the border from Lebanon. Jews were being killed. Bombs were being shot. And he tasked the defense minister, Ariel Sharon, to lead an offensive which was only supposed to go 40 kilometers into Lebanon. Sharon pushed the front, went all the way to Beirut, and in a famous, infamous incident in the Sabra and Shatila Palestinian camps, uh, he stood by while the Christian militias attacked the Palestinian camps, killing many fighters and also many civilians. And uh, the investigation, the government investigation, found that, the, that it was Ariel Sharon who was to blame because he was the commander on the spot. And after that, a journalist accused Sharon during the whole Lebanon war of having misled Begin as to the goals of the war, as to how the front was going, as to even how far he had incurred into Lebanon. And uh, Sharon sued the journalist. The case went on for 11 years, and after 11 years, uh, Sharon lost the case. So it does appear that Begin had been misled in terms of the Second Lebanon War. Tragically, shortly after, Begin was in England uh, on a trip, and his wife, who had not been well, tragically, Aliza, his wife Aliza, um, passed away in 1982. And a number of months later, Begin resigned from the prime ministership and he left the office. Uh, Yitzhak Shamir took over in his place, one of his cabinet ministers, and he spent the last 10 of his years of his life in seclusion. And um, many people viewed it that he was depressed. He saw very few people except his very inner circle and his family, although there are people who say he still wielded power in the Likud government and uh, threw around his influence. But uh, 10 years later, Begin would pass away. And here he gave direction in his will not to be buried on Mount Herzl, where almost all of the prime ministers are. And I have to make a correction. David Ben-Gurion is buried in the Negev, in uh, his beloved ranch. But Menachem Begin asked to be buried on the Mount of Olives, next to Mayor Feinstein and Moshe Barzilai, two of his boys who had fought against the British, been arrested for arms, carrying arms, been sentenced to death, and they took their own lives in prison uh, in a suicide pact before they could be hung. This is where he wanted himself and Eliza to lie. And if you go to the Mount of Olives, you can visit his grave there. So, we have an extraordinary personality, a powerful leader, a passionate soul on fire for the Jewish people, a traditional Jew 
who stood up for Jewish power and for Jewish strength. And once again, a hawk who nevertheless made peace with Egypt. Uh, a leader who led the revolt against the British with a bounty on his own head and in, from, in hiding. Uh, the individual who is responsible for, for, for uniting Jerusalem and liberating the Western Wall and the Temple Mount. He ordered the destruction of the nuclear reactor in Iraq to world condemnation. And yet, he said, his greatest accomplishment was avoiding civil war when the Haganah turned over his Irgun fighters to the British and when they fired upon them uh, in the beginning of the new Jewish state. So, uh, thank you for joining us for our great Extraordinary Jewish Personalities. Join us next Wednesday night as we move on to talk about Rabbi Avram Yitzchak Cook, another towering figure of the beginning of the State of Israel, and the first Chief Rabbi of Palestine. And we hope you'll join us every Wednesday night. Monday nights on Facebook Live, we are, Sunday nights we are starting a Jewish spirituality series. This Sunday we'll be talking about the soul and the afterlife.